Howdy, and welcome to the Feed Bandit Podcast, where we talk all things hunting and introduce you to the most innovative hunting gear and services. Here are your hosts, Jimmy Byrne and Richard Kinchlow. Howdy folks, Jimmy here. Welcome you back to another edition of the Feed Bandit Podcast. Uh, I'm here on this one, Ran Solo. Uh, we're going to start a new little series here called, I think we're going to call it Tales from the Campfire. And what old Richard Corn Bandit and I are going to do are read some of the coolest, most interesting tales, hunting stories, etc. that we've read or, or heard as we read hunting sites or even read some books uh, dealing with hunting. We think uh, some of these things you might find interesting as well, so this might be a fun little series. We'll give our commentary as we go through here and, you know, have a little color commentary if any is needed, and we'll uh, see how this goes, so we hope you like it. The first story I'm going to read today, it comes from a an anthology book uh, called The Greatest Hunting Stories Ever Told. Uh, this book contains 29 unforgettable hunting stories very interesting uh book and we're going to start off with one here about uh a turkey hunt entitled a bearded legend my best all-time trophy by charles elliott from the time of man's creation until he steps beyond the shadows his life is not so much a matter of years or seasons or days as it is of moments A vast majority of these are so vapid and humdrum that the mind makes no attempt to file them away in its incredible storehouse. Many others remain as memories or facts available to our mental computers. A few of the latter stand out bright and vivid and, in spite of the years, never lose one sparkle of their original brilliance or beauty. One of those highlights in my life had to do with a wild turkey gobbler. I have avoided saying the highlight for fear of domestic or other repercussions. I hear you there. But my moment of grandeur with that magnificent bird stands close to the top of the list. There's not a sound or movement or spot of color in that high drama that I've forgotten or will ever forget. Well, I can, uh, Jimmy here, I can attest to that in some of the turkey hunts I've been on. But let's see what he has to say. Uh, see if any of mine or your experiences have been similar. Continuing, when I first met the Kahuta gobbler, I had no faint suspicion that he and I were embarking on a on such a splendid outdoor adventure. The woods were dressed in pastel shades of greens and golds and splotched with, with chalky clumps of dogwood, making them seem almost unreal. This was spring gobbling season in the mountains, and I was hunting alone in the Cahuta Range on the Georgia-Tennessee line. For me, this is one of the most stimulating hunt seasons of the year. The forest floor is bright with flowers, tree buds are bursting with new life, and the vitality of the woods and its creatures make it seem on the verge of erupting into some unbelievable fantasy of sound and color. At dawn, I'd walked out the backbone of an isolated ridge and paused to listen for resonant notes that might indicate a big buck turkey on its roost or on the prowl. For an hour I stood there with my back against an oak tree, while the dawn woods came to life and the sun touched a distant mountain with burnished copper. About flying down time, when there's light enough for a turkey to distinguish the bushes from the bobcats, 
I yelped the cedar box in my hand, making notes like those of an, an amorous hen. This sound will sometimes set a silent old Tom's jeans to percolating and motivate him to reply with a lusty gobble to tell his intended that he's in the mood to solve her problem, and his. When, after fifteen minutes, my yelps brought no response, I strolled another quarter mile along the ridge top to try again. There I first heard him, somewhere beyond the wild jumble of ridges and valleys sprawled out below me. His notes, high-pitched and vibrant, denoted an old gobbler. From long distance, I knew that the closer I could, I could get without spooking him, the better my chances would be to put him in the bag. So I struck out in a beeline across the ragged series of ridges, navigating the rough valleys and pausing on each ridge to call and get an answer. And I'll just pause here, uh, Jimmy, to you know, comment. I'm sure that kind of story resonates with you as much as it does with me. Uh, almost the the chase is the most uh, exciting part of the turkey hunt. So that's that's an exciting thing, and I love how we're building up to see what happens here. Continuing. On the fourth ridge, I sensed that he was somewhere near. When I clicked my yelper and didn't get an answer, I considered that the bird and I were at close range. I stood motionless, straining my ears, and after a few minutes heard some creature working in the dry leaves that blanketed the, sh the shallow cove just beyond the hilltop. The crest of the summit was thinly clad in laurel, and the ground around the thickets was reasonably bare of leaves. In a half crotch to keep my head below the narrow backbone of the ridge, I circled to a point directly above where I could hear the parched leaves rattling. After listening for a moment, I concluded definitely that the sound was made by turkeys scratching for sustenance in the brown carpet, though they hadn't made a note of any kind to verify their presence. I stood perfectly still, trying to determine what my next move should be. I have little doubt that I'd have concocted some scheme to get to get a look at those birds over my gun sights, if a gray squirrel hadn't chosen that exact moment to make a trip through the scrubby timber. When I heard him rattle the bark on a tree above me, I instinctive, instinctively glanced up. The squirrel was so close I could have touched him with the tip of my gun barrel. I had my camouflage clothing on, but had neglected to smear my face that morning with bow hunter's paint, preferring instead to use a gauze mask when the time came to sit in the blind and call up a gobbler. When a squirrel saw my white face and identified me, he seemed to go berserk. He made a flying arc to the next tree, another long leap, and then in his third jump, he either misjudged distance or broke a limb in his headlong flight. I got a glimpse of him in midair, then heard him hit the leaves on the slope below. If those startled turkeys had taken to the sky, I could have killed one. They were scratching within 40 feet of where I stood. When I heard them running in the leaves, I charged through the laurel, hoping for a shot. But by the time I spotted the birds, they were sprinting up the far slope out of shotgun range. One was the tallest gobbler, gobbler I'd, e I'd ever seen in the woods. He simply dwarfed the two jakes with him. The season was running out, but I spent my last eight days on the trail of that big turkey. I still feel that if all those slopes were piling on top of one another, I must have climbed a hundred miles high. Joel Biggs, a local wildlife officer, told me that turkeys often range as far as four or five miles, and I must have looked in every cove and on top of every ridge in those 20 square miles. I hunted through the open seasons in Georgia and Tennessee and on the Okoee Wildlife Management Area. On five different occasions, I could have put a young gobbler in the bag, but I passed up each one. 
One had a raspy voice I thought belonged to my old bird. He gave me a few hair-raising moments. Yet when he walked around the edge of a log, of a log 50 feet away, I saw that his head was no longer that no longer than my index finger. I was stricken with big turkey fever. That huge gobbler had my tag on him, and I wanted him more than any big game trophy I'd ever brought home, and that included sheep, bears, elk, and caribou. Now, Jimmy here real quick. I understand that, that feeling when you see that huge gobbler with a huge beard. Although, I will say, I have yet to hunt a sheep or hunt sheep, bears, elk, or caribou yet, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see on, on that one. Continuing. Before the hunt was over that spring, I met one other mountain man who was on the trail of the same bird. Gobbler hunters have a special feeling of camaraderie. If they happen to meet on a high ridge or isolated wood, woodland trail, it's like two Daniel Boones bumping into one another. They exchange cordialities either by sign language or in whispers. Briefly swap plans so they won't conflict in choice of territory, and trade bits of information on fresh scratchings or, or other sign. They might even take a few minutes off to compare the tones of their turkey calls. Then, for the remainder of the day, each man will listen for the sound of the other's gun, hoping all the while he won't hear it. <laughs> this grizzled mountaineer I met came down the trail as softly as forest cat. After the usual rituals of greetings, he showed me his call, and I yelped my box for him. The old fellow listened with a slightly cocked ear to the notes, then nodded. Gobblers around here sure ought to like that southern accent, he commented, since he seemed a very affable and gracious fellow. I took his words with a grain of salt pepper. Hey, hold on one quick moment. Hey folks, have you ever wished that there was an easier way to find the hunting feeds, supplies, and services you need, when and where you need them? If so, check out our hunter search at feedbandit.com, where you can see what hunting suppliers are in your area or are on the way to your land. Don't waste any more precious time searching Google or calling around for feed, blinds, feeders, or even outfitters. Just use our targeted search for hunters, the Feed Bandit Hunter Search, over at feedbandit.com. We'll find your feed. During the three seasons that I devoted my full attention to this long-bearded old patriarch of the forest, I learned all over again that killing a large wild gobbler presents perhaps the greatest challenge in hunting. It doesn't take the courage needed to coldly face a charging grizzly or the stamina necessary to climb for a mountain goat or trophy ram, but nothing else requires more in woodsmanship, patience, and ingenuity. Uh, Jimmy here. Uh, for those of you who are on our email list, we've been talking about some of these things uh, off and on during, throughout this turkey season, especially the value of patience in hunting turkey. Uh, I, to me, there's nothing more important than being able to sit there and trust your instincts, but <clears throat> and wait, because there's been so many turkeys that I swear have either stopped talking to me or showed up after a long time of sitting in the same spot and wondering whether anything was, was around me. So patience is key. As I said, continuing, sorry, as I said, I stayed on the trail of the Kohata Gobbler for three seasons. I filed my license in my home state of Georgia and took birds in Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and New Mexico and could have added Tennessee to the list with a lesser gobbler. There there not been one, only one, oh, excuse me, had there not been only this one I was truly interested in. To make the cheese more binding, as they say in cracker, cracker, was it crackersy, crackeries, <laughs> crackeries, duh. 
I can't read. I learned that my old gobbler had already acquired a reputation in both the Kohata Mountains and around Okoe. Several of the local sportsmen had an eye on him, and more than a few had devoted most of their spring grunting to the bird. So I approached each April season with the growing apprehension that one of these those mountain men might get to the gobbler before I had another chance at it. I saw the bird a number of times. It seemed to lead a charmed life. Only once could I have blown the whistle on him. He walked across the road in front of my car. He was only a few yards away when I stopped, jumped from, excuse me, jumped from behind the steering wheel, and threw a shell into the chamber of my gun. The huge gobbler walked unhurriedly and almost majestically up the slope, as though he knew just as well that I wouldn't shoot. To bushwhack that old patriarch would have been a heinous crime, as 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 heinous a crime as ambushing my best friend. Once I called him to within 75 yards of my blind. For 30 minutes, he stayed at one spot, strutting and gobbling. Then he vanished as suddenly and completely as if he had been erased. It made me wonder if I had seen him at all and should seek psychiatric help. (laughs) On another occasion, I ran into him at least a couple of miles from where we'd first met. He was on the Georgia side of the line on the last day of the Georgia Open season. I was traveling a long lead, which is a local term for a main ridge, just after daylight. When I paused on the brow of a slope to call, he answered. At least I was almost certain I recognized his voice. I made a breathless detour of more than a mile to the ridge above him, but before I could get into position, half a dozen crows spotted the tom. Ganging up and harassing a lone wild turkey is a favorite crow pastime, and from their language I knew they were really working this one over. I crept downhill as close as I dared to get to the melee and set up my stand for business. For more than an hour, we maneuvered around on that point of the ridge. Finally, the crows, or an unknown intruder, or something I said on my wingbone call or cedar box, spooked him. Or maybe he just got tired of playing games. He turned away and crossed the shallow cove to the thick laurel on the next ridge. The crows apparently lost him in the laurel, but when he hit the open ridge top, they found him again. Finally, the whole sideshow continued out of hearing over the crest. The foreboding that, sometimes, that someone else would get that gobbler before me grew acute when, on the third season of our acquaintance, I had to miss the first three open days. My only consolation was that spring came later, later than usual that year, and those first legal days were rainy and cold, which might somewhat dampen the ardor between toms and hymns, normally in full blossom by then. As for the dedicated gobbler hunters, I knew they'd be in the woods even if we were in the middle of a second ice age. I, I can uh, I can uh, understand and attest to that. Um, what's killed me personally over the last two years has been uh, just things going on that have kind of limited me from hunting as much as I'd like. Uh, turkey, I got a good tom last year. This year, uh, I guess it's not a bad thing. You know, I had a had my daughter uh, at the beginning of March, and of course this virus issue going on has prevented me from getting out there still hope have hope to get out there at some point but if i don't uh, at least i have my daughter as consolation uh, i guarantee seasons going forward this will not happen again so anyway <clears throat> i will definitely make sure that i am out there even in the second ice age continuing on the morning of the fourth day i was on the mountain half an hour before daylight the brown carpet of leaves was white with frost, and a cold blanket of air lay across the hills. 
I wasn't exactly pleased with the way my plans had been disrupted on this particular morning. Phil Stone, an old hunting partner, and I decided to hunt together through the gobbling hours, then separate and scout out a tremendous territory for signs. My wife, Kate, Kate or Katie, refused to stay in camp alone and insisted on coming with us. Three's a crowd, even at turkey hunting. So when we parked in a little gap, Phil took off down a dim logging road that skirted a narrow valley. I have sent Katie on in the other direction, but she gets lost even in her own backyard, and I knew we'd then have to spend the rest of the season looking for her. <laughs> so she stayed with me, which meant confining my hunting to the more gentle terrain around her car. As the first dawn light turned the woods from black to gray, a ruffled grouse flashed across the road. Further down the valley, we flushed two more of these colorful birds out of a branch bottom. The dawn was bright and cold as we climbed the point of a low ridge overlooking the valley. From this spot, I knew we were high enough to hear turkeys on any of the half-dozen ridges slipping away from that massive range around Big Frog Mountain. Katie and I got settled and waited until the noise we made in the frozen leaves was forgotten by the forest creatures around us, and they began to move about once more. Uh, real quick, yeah, that's something else we talked about is, you know, once you find a spot or you settle in, you know, give it, give it time, let it, uh, let it settle down. Uh, I typically wait at least 20 minutes before I call again. So I'm glad he, uh, confirmed, uh, that thought on my, on our part here. On my box, I gave the low plaintive notes of a hen. After a few minutes without an answer, I called much louder. A quarter of an hour later, I rattled the box with the 30 call of a gobbler. All this activity produced exactly no results, except for the raucous notes of a crow across the valley and the loud drummings of a woodpecker on a hollow stub nearby. <clears throat> Katie and I climbed over the crest of the ridge into the next valley to repeat our performance. The sun spotlighted the tops of the highest hills and the line of light gradually crept down the mountains until it touched and warmed our half-numb hands and, and cheeks. We moved from one ridge to another and heard nothing that resembled the notes of a turkey. At 8.30 a.m., we made our way back over the trail to where we met Phil Stone, who had also gone through an unproductive session. The three of us discussed the situation and decided that, with the season so retarded, the birds were not yet courting and probably not even speaking to one another. This evaluation gave me a vast sense of relief, along with some assurance that, my, that any big gobbler had not yet been disturbed and that I'd see him again somewhere in these mountains, mountain woods. Katie and Phil were already in the cart, impatiently waiting for me while licking their chops in anticipation over the Bloody Marys they would be soon having at breakfast. I don't know whether it was impulse, instinct, or some strange intuition that suddenly impelled me to step away from the car to the edge of the road with the turkey call in my hand. I clucked a couple of times, gave the low, breathless notes of a hen, and then listened. No response. I'd expected none. Still, still merely to complete the routine, I half-heartedly rattled my box to stimulate the call of a gobbler. There was nothing half-hearted in the challenge that bounced back from the next ridge almost quickly enough to pass for an echo. I have no idea how my two partners got out of the car and beside me so fast and so noiselessly, but they now appeared to have lost all interest in breakfast or Bloody Marys. I touched my finger to my lips. Stand here a few minutes, I whispered, and let's see which direction he's headed. 
When the buck turkey gobbled again, he was a hundred yards further down the ridge. That was enough for me. My partners agreed that I could travel faster and get ahead of the gobbler if I went alone, and that I also might have a better chance of seeing and and definitely identifying him as the one bird I wanted. As for myself, I already knew. I climbed the slope and circled the side of the hill in a half run. At the spot where I hoped to intercept the gobbler, I zipped up my camouflage suit and sat down at the base of the big tree with emerald vegetation growing before it. I wasn't sure yet who it was, who was the Tom that answered, but he gobbled again shortly after I'd given him the soft, gentle notes of a hen on my slate-type call. Minutes later, a second gobbler, this one with a younger voice, set the woods to ringing off, set the woods to ringing off to my left. The smaller Tom definitely was coming to me, but the turkey I had planned to intercept walked off his ridge, crossed a rivulet in the hollow, and climbed to a cove that angled away from where I had taken my stand. I left the young buck turkey decoying to my squeal and took off across the slope. I didn't even try to convince myself I was acting foolishly and giving up a bird in the hand for a try at the old boy with the rusty pipes. The big Tom had already cost me at least five gobblers since I'd first met him. I figured he should be worth at least one more. By mid-morning, the leaves had lost their frosty coating. The drying forest floor became much noisier underfoot. I had to pause every few minutes to get another fix on the gobbler, who continued to answer my calls. We were walking at about the same speed. By the time I reached the road that separated George's Cahuta Range from Tennessee's Okoe, the Tom had crossed the road and climbed the side of a massive mountain into the forbidden area. This appeared to be the end of the trail. The, the Okoe area was closed except for five two-day periods in April, and I wouldn't have another chance at him until then. It looked like old Longbeard had once, once again given me the shaft. By all sane criteria, I knew it was hardly possible to entice that cagey gobbler to backtrack so late the day over the route he'd just taken, especially since he had been intent on going the other way from the moment we'd first heard him. One thing for sure, I had nothing to lose by trying. I whacked my cedar box with a couple of lusty yelps. Almost instantly, he came back with a high-pitched gobble. I settled down in a little clump of pines in legal territory to wait. At least ten minutes went by by before his resonant tones again rolled down the mountain, and this time they seemed to come from farther off. I waited. His next call came from near the top of the mountain. There wasn't any doubt in my mind now that he was walking out of this picture. In desperation, I gobbled my box as loud as I could make it quaver. For a full twenty minutes, complete silence. Then he sounded off again, from approximately the same spot where I had last heard him. My heart gave an extra thump or two. At least I'd stopped his flight, momentarily. Now I can understand this Jimmy here. <clears throat> when you don't hear it for a long while, and then all of a sudden he answers back. I can, my, I can, I can just feel it right now. You know, that feeling of the, your blood pressure go up and your heart skipping a beat, thinking, is it possible? Continuing. I waited, and waited, and waited. I have no idea how long I sat in that one spot, trying to convince myself he'd already gone on and over the mountain. I suppose the only thing that kept the seat of my pants pressed against the unfriendly rocks and roots was the knowledge that many times when a Tom stops gobbling, he hasn't been spooked. He's come in to investigate. If so, there wasn't any harm in giving him my exact location. Stealthily, I reached for the slate and cedar stick 
touched them softly together for a few dainty clucks, then dropped them beside me on the ground. Most novice hunters are likely to call much too much. There's a good piece of advice right there. You know, even if he stopped talking and he got quiet, then sit there, be patient. He might be coming into you, and don't overcall. <clears throat> to wait and keep on waiting requires an enormous amount of patience, even more so when there's no hint of any kind whether you're on the verge of success. Amen. At last I gave up. The rocks and roots now seemed to be actively attack attacking my hindquarters. My legs felt numb from sitting in one position. Phil and Katie, well, before I continue, what he needed is one of those uh, nice turkey chairs that I use now. <laughs> you could stay a lot longer sitting in one of those. Phil and Katie, and beyond them the Bloody Marys, country sausage, eggs, and biscuits, were waiting. I hadn't heard a peep out of my gobbler for three quarters of an hour, but now he could be in the next county. With disappointment welling through me, I shifted my position to reach for the slate and cedar stick I had dropped to the ground. Suddenly, somewhere a limb or twig cracked, the sound, the sound a deer makes as it tiptoes through the woods. I came to full attention again, straining my eyes for a glimpse of feet or head or brown deer hide. For a dozen minutes, I sat motionless. At last, I decided that the animal or whatever had, that had cracked that stick must have drifted on by. Once more I relaxed and prepared to gather up my gear and call it a day. I was on the verge of standing up to give my numb muscles some relief when I heard footsteps in the leaves. The cadence was exactly that of a man who slipped stealthily along, stalking unseen quarry. Again I froze. I couldn't see a man or make out movements of any kind, but at the, mo at the moment there wasn't anything I needed less than a load of high brass, number four or number six pellets, smacking my face. I'd been straining so hard to see some deer or human form that my first glimpse of the gobbler now came as a distinct shock. He was beyond and walking parallel to a contour that dropped off like a terrace about twenty yards in front of my blind. The contour hid all but the meaty, wrinkled top of his head above the wattles. I couldn't see enough yet to definitely identify him as the old patriarch who had led me on, on a merry three-year chase, but that one glimpse still had me all shook up inside. He took two more steps, bringing his head higher up above the contour, but I still couldn't see his beard or judge his size. He put his head down to peck at something on the forest floor, and while his eyes, eye was out of sight, I quickly raised my gun. On its way up, the gun dislodged a dead Y-shaped stem. It straddled and lodged on the gun barrel in such a way I couldn't see the sights. The bird continued to walk, growing taller and taller as it came up the shoulder of the hill and I moved the barrel slowly to keep it in line with his head. It was purely a matter of luck that at the same moment my gobbler walked behind a large tree trunk. A protruding twig suddenly flipped the Y stem from my barrel. When the tom stepped past the tree, my sights were directly on his head. My 12-grade Winchester pump gun was loaded with shells holding number 6 shot. Some hunters like large shot, number 4, number 2, but I know I have a better chance of hitting the vital parts of a bird's head and neck with a denser pattern. Most shots in this type of hunting are at a bird's head and neck while he's still on the ground. I often back up my first round at number six with a number four and then a number two load, which gives me a reserve of progressively larger pellets to break down a turkey that flies or runs after the first shot. There he stood for all of five seconds with his head up in a patch of sunlight, as tall and majestic as I remembered him from two springs before. He was so close it seemed I could reach out and touch him with my gun. 
Then sunlight on his feathers made them ripple in a display of copper, green and gold, so resplendent that I caught my breath. What a beauty! Then I saw his heavy beard and knew beyond any doubt that he was indeed the old patriarch I had dreamed about for so long. It was almost sacrilegious to shatter that magnificent moment with a shot, but the powerful impulses developed in a lifetime of hunting triggered the gun. It was a clean, one-kill shot. That's when all the excitement of the past two hours finally hit me. My hand shook as I tried to unstrap the camera from my shoulder. When I hefted the bird for weight and saw how far I had to lift his feet so that his head would clear the ground, I got the shakes all over again. He pulled the hand on the corroded old camp scales up to 25 and a half pounds, the largest mountain gobbler I'd, I've ever seen and one of the biggest turkeys I've ever killed, including the heavier breeds from some of the southern plantations. Phil peered wonderingly over his glasses at the scales. There just ain't no telling, he said, what this critter might have weighed if these scales weren't so rusty. We checked them later on and found out the scales did, in fact, read almost one and a half pounds too low. At that moment, though, the gobbler's weight didn't make too much difference. He had given me my finest hunt in turkey woods, and he still remains my most highly prized big game trophy. Man, that's that's a great story. I can totally uh, relate to that very end when, you know, he's standing there trying not to move, and he has the twig, you know, uh, leaning against his gun. And, of course, you don't want to move your gun because you might make a noise with the twig. <clears throat> standing there, your arms start getting tired because you don't have a clean shot. And uh, you wait for the turkey to go by in a tree or somehow look look around, look behind him so he's not looking at you anymore so you can you know, qu- quickly and quietly readjust. And then right at that moment, bam, it's literally like your muscles like take over and you don't really... It's like your brain almost doesn't tell your finger to shoot. Your instinct tells you to shoot. That's that's what it's all about. That's turkey hunting right there. So I hope uh, everyone out there listening uh, enjoyed that story. And we'll rely and read uh, some other stories in the future in this new series, Tales from the Campfire. So uh, if, it, if you liked it, if you want us to do more of these, uh, please let us know. Um, email us at howdy at feedbandit.com. Give us some feedback. And uh, we will uh, continue with these stories uh, on down the road. So everyone out there, thanks for listening and have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Feed Bandit podcast. If you like what we discuss on the show, be sure to sign up to our email list to get even more killer hunting ideas, tips, tricks, and exclusive deals on innovative hunting gear and services delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up over at FeedBandit.com or simply by texting the word BANDIT to 33777. See you on the next one. And remember, support your local feed store.